Our second reading is from the book of Job, chapters 38, 40, and 41. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The word of the Lord. We finish off our series in Job today. We have been in it for four weeks, intending originally to be five, but the reality is this, when you're looking at a book like Job, and you're trying to talk about pain and suffering and evil and God, any series, any talk, any book is going to fall short. So that's our lofty goal today, to fall short. <laughs> but we're going to take one more stab at it, just to orient us towards who God is and how we should then approach the world in which we live that is filled with things like suffering and pain. 
So the story of Job, which if we go back several weeks, started like this. A horrible day happened to Job. All sorts of things happened at the same time. And Job's initial response was unbelievable trust in God. The next week, we looked at Job's lament in Job chapter 3, where he cries out in pain to God. And then, as the weeks progressed, if you actually read through Job, what you find is Job begins to complain to God. And when we get to the end of the book, he actually wants an audience with God. He wants a chance to stand before God and to be able to make his case. To be able to ask why. Why does this suffering and evil happen when I haven't done anything? He wants a chance to speak with God directly. To give him a piece of his mind, if you would. So Job gets a chance to meet God. But it doesn't play out the way he's expecting. God instead addresses Job first. And the first thing he says in Job 38, verse 2, is, Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Job, you darken counsel. You arrogantly talk about what you do not understand. You arrogantly talk about what you do not understand. I was trying to think through what the equivalent might be for us. So here was the best I came up with. MD Anderson is one of the best and premier cancer centers in the world. It's located in Houston. So the equivalent of what God is saying to Job would be, if I flip it around a little bit, if I decided that I had a lot of wisdom to offer all those oncologists at MD Anderson, I got myself a, a table with the heads of the oncology at MD Anderson, and when I gathered them together, I was going to tell them how to eliminate cancer. Guys, it's goji berries. You see, I read this in USA Today. It's this Asian fruit. It's a superfood. And they've been using it for years to eliminate cancer. If you guys would just start with the goji berries, Dr. Oz even said it works. And now if they were kind, they would listen to me before kicking me out. God is saying, what you're doing, Job, is the equivalent of suggesting goji berries for cancer. Your questions about my justice and your suffering lack wisdom. Is it possible, and this is one of the things we're meant to take from Job, is it possible that our own questions about the existence of God and the problem of evil amount to throwing goji berry questions at it? When it comes down to it, as modern Americans, we are poorly equipped for dealing well with suffering and evil and death. Why? Because we are too big and our God is too small. We are too big, which means it's hard for us to figure out how to deal with suffering. You see, in our modern American world, we live for ourselves. We all do. The goal of an American is the pursuit of freedom pleasure, and personal happiness. And when those are your primary drives, you really have no category for suffering. On top of that, think about how our modern life exists. We have such advances in technology. There's been such human progress over the past hundred years. We now have unfettered access to information about everything. 
When you combine that with radical individualism and the elevation of the self, it leads to false conclusions, such as this. We cannot imagine a reason God would have for suffering and evil. Therefore, either it must not exist or God doesn't exist. If we can't think of it, there must not be one. We elevate ourselves so we don't know what to do with suffering and evil. Secondly, our God is too small. Modern American religious people, including those who say that they're Christians, usually have a self-constructed view of God. It's not God the creator and Lord. It's not sin, meaning God being holy and a judge. And we're very uncomfortable with even Jesus Christ being the only way to salvation. So when you take God or a view of God and you pull out all of these things, the result is an abstract God or a weak God. In other words, it's a God made in our image, not the other way around. This small God, the view of God that we construct on our own, has weak answers to the big questions of life, like, why are we here? What is our purpose? How do we discover human identity? And and it has even fewer resources for the questions of suffering and evil and death. The modern secular response to suffering is tantamount to groping in the dark for something to hold on to. And if you go all the way, even away from believing in God at all, you'd have to go the route that Nietzsche went. Nietzsche was at least had integrity of thought, and here's what he thought. He thought, you can't prove God, therefore God doesn't exist. And if God doesn't exist, life has no meaning. Death is the end. That's it. One young woman who grew up in a missionary home in Kenya said, when you take this view, this is where it ends up going. In a naturalistic worldview, a parentless orphan in the slums can only be explained by survival of the fittest. When the suffering in the world causes you to say there can't be a God, as soon as you say there can't be a God, there's no reason for suffering. And you know what? Some kids grow up parentless in the slums, and well, that's just the way it is. Stinks for them. But that is actually the honest answer of the atheist. Pain and death are meaningless. So the only hope is to eliminate pain, to avoid it as often as we can, or try to manage it when it does come. Larissa, who is a staff writer for The New Yorker, her last name is too hard for me to pronounce, did a project where she was looking at the sacrifices that religious people make. And when she was quoted in the Boston Globe, this is what she said, within many religious traditions, there is much more of an acceptance of suffering as a part of life because it can help you become a fuller person. Whereas secular utilitarians, that's modern atheists, hate suffering. They see nothing good in it, They want to eliminate it, and they see themselves responsible for doing so. There's lots of great examples of how to manage, eliminate, or avoid suffering in our secular world. 
I was listening just this week to the TED Radio Hour, which is NPR, NPR culling or curating talks from the TED conferences and, and putting them together because they're on a, a common theme. The theme of one recently was rethinking death. And they had five or six different TED Talks on death, and they had people share, and then they would interview them. There was an artist, journalist, doctor, and basically each one of them, it became clear, had no real faith in God, but they were trying to deal with death in their own way. One woman, a journalist, talked about the seven-year journey with her husband in cancer, and that ultimately her hope was in denying death. She pretended like it was never going to happen and as a result enjoyed the days with him. Now he's gone, but at least during those days it was okay. Denial is hope, she said. An artist decided to paint a big mural on a wall in a cityscape that said, what do you want to do before you die? And then she left a bucket of chalk and people came along and put down the things they wanted to do before they die. Because she said, look, we're all going to die, and that's it, so you might as well take advantage as much as you can today. So the best way to deal with death is to realize it is the end, so do what you can now. And a third, a doctor who works in a hospice center, said he really believed that there was a power to aesthetics and beauty. And so he tried to create a hospice center that enabled people to die with beauty around them. And one of the central features was a kitchen in the middle where they baked cookies all throughout the day because the scent of cookies brought a joy and a memory. Denial is hope. Live today. The smell of cookies. The secular view is since death is the end and there is no meaning in life, denial is good and the smell of cookies helps. There's really not much else to hold on to. Tim Keller, in the book that I've quoted a few times, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, explains it very well. Modern discussions of the problem of suffering start with an abstract God. Even if you believe in God, it's a God who is all-powerful and all-good, but who is not glorious infinitely wise, the creator and sustainer of all things. No wonder that modern people are far more prone than their ancestors to conclude that if they can see no good reason for suffering, God could not have any justifiable reason for it either. If evil does not make sense to us, well then, simply evil does not make sense. We are too big in our own view, and our God is too small to deal well with suffering and death. And so we're left groping in the dark. Fortunately for Job, this is not how it ended. Him groping in the dark because God confronts him. And while it's a painful thing to listen to, it's actually a beneficial thing to Job. God starts in on Job and he says, dress for action like a man and I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. This is one of those times where if you ever wondered if God has a sense of humor, just read through Job 38 through 42. God has a sarcastic sense of humor. Job, all this wisdom you seem to be espousing, I guess you know everything, don't you, Job? 
you were there when I said, let there be light. You remember that, right? Or wait, maybe, maybe it was you who said, let there be light. Was I just standing next to you? I thought I said it, but maybe it was you, Job. How big did it, did you determine the space of the earth? Did you, were you the one who set the oceans and the, and the land next to you? You must have been the one, right? Maybe you can instruct me, Job. I thought I was God, but apparently you are. Go ahead, Job, start talking to me about it. You're the one who brings rain when there needs to be rain, right? You can control the weather. Is that right, Job? It's right, right, Job? You're the one who knows about all the creatures. You're the one who makes sure they're fed and they bring up their babies. You're the one who will bring judgment on the evil. Is that right, Job? I guess you're strong enough to save yourself. Okay, I'll just leave it to you to save yourself. You want that, Job? God's argument is you do not fully grasp even the complexity of creation. And as smart as we are today, we don't either. And Job, you have virtually no power to affect or control the creation. So is it possible, Job, is it possible that the orderings of the moral and spiritual universe are similar? Job, I am sovereign. I'm directing all things, whether it is creation or your lives, towards my intended good end. And what is Job's response to God? At first, it's silence. In the middle of God's speech, Job speaks, but he basically goes like this. And God keeps going. And then it gets to the end. And Job responds rightly. He responds rightly with confession and repentance. He confesses his wrong. In Job 42, verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I have been an idiot. Then verse 6, Therefore I despise myself, and repent in dust and ashes. That was the ancient physical manifestation of humility and confession before God. He lays himself down completely, repenting before God. But if you read Job's life, you have to ask, for what is Job repenting? What did he do? If you actually look at Job's life, he was morally very good. He followed all the commandments, he was incredibly religious. Go look at Job 1 and 2. He did everything that a religious person should have done in that day and age. And he was just and merciful to the orphan, to the poor, to the traveler. He was a generous man, a good man, a God-fearing man. He did everything. Why is he confessing? Job is repenting of trying to be God. One commentator put it this way, Job began to question God's justice and wisdom and power. He adopted the attitude that he knew better than God. It's the root of all of our sin. The attitude that I don't need God. It's trying to live without regard for him. And in the end, Job does the only thing left for him to do. He worships. 
See this in verse two. I know that you, God, can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You and you alone are God. The book of Job is often called a theodicy. A theodicy is when you try to solve the problem of evil in the world with a belief in God. The conclusion of the theodicy of Job, why is there suffering and how can you reconcile it to God? The conclusion is this, God is God and we are not. God is sovereign, creator, and Lord. We cannot fully understand his purposes. We are the clay, he is the potter. So when it comes to suffering and evil and death, repent and worship and put your trust in the one true God. But this feels cold and harsh. Why? I think it feels particularly harsh because we don't really know God. And so we don't really trust him. What kind of God is this God that Job is meeting? Well, first, it's important to know that Job meets God. In Job 42, verse 5, I had skipped over this verse. Job says, in the midst of his confession, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I had heard of you, but now I see you. Now I'm experiencing you. Now I know you personally. Now I'm in relationship with you. You see, I'd heard about you through the traditions. All of my people are these religious people. Or I'd heard about you from my friends who talked about you. I'd done the religious thing, gone to the places where you worship. I'd heard about you. Now I know you. Think about that. What is integral to Job's repentance? It's not guilt. It's relationship. It's because he knows and experiences God personally. In other words, to trust God in the midst of suffering and evil and pain and death, we need to know him. This God is creator. He is sustainer. He is Lord and judge. And he is also redeemer, savior, loving father, friend. Job longed, throughout the book of Job, we, there's a couple places where Job longs for something more than he's experiencing, and what he longs for is to be restored to God, to be with him. In Job 19, there's one of these famous passages that if you've ever been in an Anglican funeral service, you will have heard it, but in other services use it as well. Job declares prophetically something about the end and his hope in God. This is in the middle of his suffering. In Job 19.25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Job is looking for a redeemer. That's the Hebrew word goel, which means a kinsman redeemer, a relative who would come and set you free, a relative who would restore you to your place. I need a redeemer. 
somebody to come and set me free. I know that I will die, but because God is a redeemer, he will restore me to him. Earlier, Job in Job 9 is looking for an arbiter, somebody to mediate between him and God. And in Job 16, he's looking for a witness, somebody who will be his legal advocate before the Father. A redeemer, a witness, an arbiter, somebody to advocate for us. Job, of course, is looking prophetically, even if unknowingly, to Jesus. And if we want to know what God is like, what he is truly like, can we trust him? We need to look to Jesus and what he's done. Jesus is the answer to Job's longing and to ours. He is the one that restores us to God and brings us into his presence. In, Joe, in Romans 8, Romans 8, 31 to 35, I'm gonna skip over Romans 5. In Romans 8, 31 to 35, we read this last week. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now think, this is describing God. Can you trust him? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies us. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was condemned for us. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God and who is interceding for us. He is our arbiter, our witness, and our redeemer. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Can any suffering and evil, even death, separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God that is us, ours in Christ? No. Who is this God? We are reconciled because he was forsaken. He is condemned so that we can be justified. And this Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. He is how we know the nature of God. The God who is sovereign over evil and pain and death is Jesus, the God who suffered evil and pain and death. Can you trust this God? Can you? This God is the God who knows what we are enduring because he's experienced evil and pain with and for us. Can you trust this God? This is the God who loves us, loves us enough to give himself for us, who offers us forgiveness and reconciliation and assures us that it is because of his finished work on the cross and by his incredible and unfailing grace that we are brought into the presence of God. And no matter what happens, this God is the judge who will, who will right all wrongs. The God who is redeemer 
and will restore all things. You know, the Christian hope is not denial, or that just when you get to the end, it's the puts away with all the pain. <laughs> the Christian hope, hope is that this is not all there is. The Christian hope is that there's resurrection life after this life. And the hope of the resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection and ours, is the redeeming of all our suffering. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, put it this way, people on earth can't imagine heaven making up for suffering, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Tim Keller, in the book that we, I've been reading, put it this way, resurrection is not just consolation, it is restoration. We get it all back, the love, the loved ones, the goods, the joys and beauties of this life, but in new, unimaginable, and infinitely greater degrees of glory and joy and strength. It is the reversal of all that is suffered and lost. The unimaginable hope of the resurrection is that Jesus had scars. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had scars. Those holes in his hands, the beating on his body was an emblem of what he had suffered and was actually an emblem of his greatest glory. It was in his death on the cross that he accomplished all things, fully revealing God and restoring humanity and ultimately one day creation. It is in those scars that we see his glory and they're gonna be with him forever. But it's not his suffering anymore. It's his deepest joy and greatest source of glory. And if that's true, it may be that our worst suffering and pain and loss will one day be the source of our greatest joy. The deeper the pain, the greater the joy. If we're going to trust this God with a life that is filled with evil and suffering and death, we need to know this God. And we need to know God revealed, God available to us in Jesus, not the God we imagine. And when we do, he is a God we can trust our lives with. There was a woman, Tess, who gave a witness story in Keller's book about the death of her baby boy to SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, and how God encouraged her and restored her joy and trust in him. And she ends up quoting her pastor, and this is what she says. God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. God gives us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. When it comes to suffering, evil, and death, we can't know everything he knows, but we can know him, and we can trust him. Let's pray.
God, our creator, our redeemer, and our Lord. By the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, you conquered sin and death and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all of our days by this victory. Forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to worship you, and strengthen us to wait for the coming of your kingdom, the resurrection of our bodies on that last great day. Through Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior and God, we pray. Amen. Thank you.